You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. You're listening to City World Radio Intelligent Talk, Thursday at 5 p.m. We are pleased to have Mr. Victor Ostrovsky, a former Mossad officer. He was the uh, youngest officer in the Israeli Navy. He rose to the head of weapons testing for the Israeli Navy. He was then invited to join the Mossad, where he leapt at the opportunity to serve Israel. He published his important book, By Way of Deception, in the early 90s. Israel tried to ban it, and it became a New York Times bestseller. The book focuses on the Mossad, Hebrew word for institute. Israel's very effective and renowned intelligence service. We will get a rare insight into the secretive organization now from a former Mossad officer. Mr. Ostrovsky, while supporting Israel and the Mossad, felt the agency could be better run, and his book was his attempt to do that, which in his view was a service to the Jewish state. Is, is that correct, Mr. Ostrovsky? You thought that your book would point out flaws and make the Mossad a better functioning service. Uh, yes, the, the point of the book was in actually to reveal elements that were not working within the realm of the law. Not working uh, within the realm of the law. That's right. There are the Mossad is really not was not regulated at the time, and uh, it basically belonged to the office of the prime minister directly. And uh, it, it answered basically to no one. There was a controller that was one that was in charge of the budget and etc. But that controller was appointed by the head of Mossad and approved internally, and would report then to the members of the Knesset of the Intelligence Committee. It was a weird uh, internal. Uh, like, a, like a marriage within the family. I understand. And, uh, and the, in addition to that, the, the head of the Mossad, who was a secret person, was not known who he is, and was kept in the secret just like in the British system at the time, and that, that killed the accountability element. The Shabbat, on the other hand, which is Israel's internal service, uh, security service, did have a full range of regulations and laws that they abided by. So the, it's like sort of the Israeli FBI, the Shabbat, you think was better run than the Mossad, was more accountable? It was accountable. Not necessarily better run, but it was accountable because it had a, a Knesset department that it would answer to. It had rules and regulations. Okay. It was a much more open system, uh, not necessarily open in the way that you reveal internal secrets, but but in a way that you are you know, the, the people who are making decisions are accountable to it. 
Got it. One of the sayings you had there, which was in the Masad, which was, do not do an immoral thing for a moral reason. And you felt that Masad occasionally violated that. Correct? At the time, quite often. Okay. So the first part of the book details your training at the Masad. And you learn the history of the Masad and history of their operations. You describe how it's told to, uh, like, for example, be on a certain balcony drinking water. And I remember you said in the book, you had to say you were taking a traffic survey. You got to that balcony. That was interesting. In a place like Israel, which you mentioned that is difficult to establish trust and people are on guard, you, um, you must have learned during your training to be a pretty outgoing person. Would that be fair to say? Yes. As part of the training, that's what you become. Uh, you, you cause it, it's very easy to overcome internal shyness or whatever because you are a tool of the agency, you belong to the agency, and whatever you do, you're not doing it on, on behalf of yourself. So it kind of gives you a mental cover for it. And you had three years of training, is that correct, Mr. Ostrovsky? Two and a half, actually. Two and a half, Okay. And you detail a number of fascinating operations and information which I want to get into. For example, you said it was an operation to save Prime Minister Golda Meir from a missile attack when she landed in Rome. That was a remarkable issue in the 1970s to confront, sort of a precursor to the fears we have now. That was taught to you, I guess, during the Mossad history, that, that assassination attempt? That is correct. And, um, and, then that, and then you also mentioned, too, I think there was heroin was used to finance some of the operations outside of Israeli oversight. Heroin that um, Mossad would get their hands on through various operations. Uh, is that correct? Well, it was more or less not necessarily an organizational element. There were people within the system that were responsible for that. There was one of them at the time whose name was Mike Halali, who was uh, one of the deputies of the agency. And he was in charge of also an operation of the the bayonet or the the, the wet operations of the agency at the time. He and he was also responsible for the big mishap in Lillehammer where they killed the wrong guy. Yes, the wrong person who was responsible for the Munich seventy two uh, attacks, and they killed Golda Meir, signed a death warrants for all those people, and they killed that poor um, waiter, I guess, in Lillehammer, Norway. Um, That's you also mentioned, too, like, um, I'm just going through a list of things. The Mossad intervened to expose um, Rabin's wife, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin's wife, who had a U.S. bank account, and this helped lead to his defeat by Begin. Um, is, it, is it fair to say that the Mossad is more comfortable with Likud leaders versus labor in general? No, it's not necessarily that way. It very much depends on the leader itself. The Rabin, who came from the military, and he was one of the most decorated officers in the Israeli military, he had no trust in the agencies because he said he, he believed they had an agenda, a political agenda, which was more leading to the right because war or, you know, the situation of tension uh, increased budgets and allowed them to have a more freer hand in doing things. It was an idea of, you know, the politicians are here and they go. They come and go. We're here to stay. But we know better than them, and trying to get away as much as possible from the civilian oversight. Got but it. Rabin didn't trust it to the point where he said, um, give me the raw information, you know, don't analyze it for me too much. 
So they dumped information on him to the point where it became useless. Okay. Um, you said that in the book, obviously, Israel has a network of spies in the U.S. You mentioned scions, like Jewish people who are who will help the agency if someone needs a doctor, for example. That's probably still the case today in the U.S. Would, would you agree? Well, I would say it's the case everywhere in the world. That they're not spies. It's a very big difference between a spy and a scion. A scion is approached not necessarily as an agency member, and he's approached in a way that says, if we need you, would you be willing to help, you know, save Jews around the world or whatever? And then if they need, a, let's say, a doctor, so he gets called at night, and he says that we have a problem. Most people have turned, you know, this kind of assistance down. But you know for a fact that even if they turn you down, they're not going to turn you in. And oh. there's a big difference between that. So it allows for the approach. And But they're not... And w- would you agree that makes sense for Israel to do that? I mean, just as a practical matter, that's a probably a good thing for them to do? Oh, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not arguing with that. And, okay. Um, and I think that the people that are assisting in that way are necessarily traitors. Okay. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that just Mossad is doing it. I mean, I think most countries that have compatriots in other countries uh, are using it one way or another. One of the things you talk about in the book, too, is how basically the Mossad intervened to take out Arafat's aide, Kadir, K-H-A-D-I-R, who basically was sent to, uh, sent to Israel to stop the invasion of Lebanon in the early 80s. They essentially wanted to support the government's invasion of, of Lebanon as a matter of Israeli government policy. Is that correct? That is correct, and they've done it more than once and more than one time, more than one place. Uh, the, the whole idea of uh, expansion and, you know, changing the governments around you for the benefit of the state uh, was always the case. They always looked at it about the balance of weakness. So one of the factions, for example, in Lebanon was becoming strong, then you you support their, 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 their enemies and create a balance of weakness. So they're constantly fighting. Okay. Um, you also write that the head of the Mossad, I believe, uh, Hafi, I may have that spelled incorrectly, killed two minor PLO officials in the mid-70s in Athens. Some people have said they, they didn't think that the head of the Mossad would be responsible for that. I note that Isser Harrell was in Argentina, I believe, to supervise the Eichmann abduction. So y- you stand by that, that, that the, the Israeli head of Mossad personally organized that assassination in the mid-70s and did it himself? No, not did it himself and not organized it. But what happened is this. There's a line of communication. When you take out an assassination attempt, it can become highly political and it has to be a, an oversight on it within the system. Since it, it answers to the office of the prime minister, you need to have somebody of authority that can take a decision or get an order from the prime minister to stop it even at the last minute. Okay. So the, it, it was a standard procedure at the time when something like that would take place. The prime minister, the, the head of Mossad, would be somewhere in the vicinity to oversee, you know, the last procedure and give the last okay and approval to go ahead. I see. So he didn't actually do it. He was just on the ground. Yes. 
sort of like Isser Harrell in, in Argentina when they got Eichmann. Is, would that be fair to say? Kind of, but he wasn't that connected to it. He was he was there for you know for a very short period of time, and they they held him for quite a while there and interrogated him when he was still in Argentina. So it's it, it's similar, but it is it, 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 it kind of started the whole procedure. You also have a, a fascinating account of how Israel penetrated the basically Iraqi scientists that paved the way for Israel to bomb the Dimona nuclear facilities in 81, one of the main reasons why Saddam Hussein didn't have nuclear weapons, even though he pretended to, to scare off the Iranians. That was obviously a successful operation. I think you would agree that that's the kind of thing Mossad is good at and, and should have done. That was an example of a good operation? Well, it's not the Dimona. Dimona is a, is a nuclear facility that Israel has. I'm oh, sorry. It I, was in Azarak, Azarak, sorry. In Samuz in Baghdad. Uh, well, the Mossad operation actually failed because uh, there was an attempt to stop the creation and the building of the facility and to delay it. They managed to delay it by sabotaging elements, killing some of the scientists, etc. But eventually they had to use the Air Force to come in and take out the facility. So in a way... It was a, the delay element worked, but the operation failed. Had they not failed, they would not have to have that spectacular air attack which took out the facility. So, so do you think you think the operation could have been better run? Is what you're saying? No, it was just you know you can run a good operation and you can do it. So that's why you have stages of levels of success. A successful operation would have been the you know, the elimination of the facility and the stopping of the creation of it. But having failed in that sense, they succeeded in delaying the, the, the procedure, but then the Air Force had to come in and take it out. And that was not a Mossad operation. Got it, yes. Um, and just getting to some of your criticisms of the Mossad, I mean, First of all, you said you were basically, you had to leave because you were basically made a scapegoat for an error of taking down a 1986 plane from Libya with a mistaken belief that Abu Nidal was on the plane, when, of course, you had warned Israel, based on information you had in Cyprus, that he was not on the plane. Is, is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And the, the, the interesting thing is I was there, you know, as an Mossad officer, and I, I, just, I just brought in information, you know, I... On a personal level, I could care less at the time if they brought it in or not, but the warning was there. And then I was left on a on a patrol boat that was supposed to take me back from Cyprus to Israel. And uh, the captain of the boat, who, who told me that he's been called from headquarters and notified that he's got engine problems which was quite funny because, you know, the person who would know if they have engine problems would not be headquarters. I was the captain of the boat. So it's kind of like a delay keep me out so I can't come in and fix my report until they can straighten everything out and make sure that it's all covered up neatly. Exactly. And you mentioned also that the French were not tipped off about that famous Carlos a terrorist and led to several French deaths uh, needlessly because of jealousy by Mossad. And as we, as you write, literally, it seems that there's a history of doing that, especially in regards to the Americans, which I'll get to that in a second. But that was true that, that they were not tipped off that Carlos a terrorist was in France, even though the Mossad knew about that. Is that correct? Yeah, 
Well, they knew that he was in Paris and in France, but they didn't, when the French police were heading to his apartment to, based on a tip, they weren't told that there is to beware that there is this real terrorist, which is called Carlos the Jackal, who was there and he would, so they sent regular police rather than send a SWAT team or something. And they were let go and the, the policeman and the informer that they had, the French had, was killed right there and then. Okay. Um, I just want to mention another operation you mentioned, and I'll just play devil's advocate. I mean, obviously, there's a famous killing in the U.S. when Chile uh, was taken over by Pinochet in 73, and an activist um, was, was blown up, basically, in Washington, um, Orlando Letlier, and uh, also with an aide of his, uh, Ronnie Moffat. And basically, what you write about is that the Israelis helped facilitate that assassination in 1976, I believe, because of a deal to get a French Exocet missile. And... Um, First of all, is that correct? Yeah. And to me, I mean, obviously, uh, just in sort of just playing devil's advocate with Israel, like, for example, you look at someone like Mark Rich and the oil trading that went around when he was trading with the Soviet Union and Israel and South Africa and doing it all in a clandestine fashion. And, and it was never reported, at least not until after he died, most of it. Is there something to be said that Israel was forced to do these type of deals to protect itself? Is there anything that can justify an operation like that? Yeah, absolutely. It depends how you know how, how far you want to take it. The, the whole thing was in telling about it was not that it was not necessarily a good operation, but it wasn't cleared by the leadership and the political elements. Okay, it could have led to, but, but getting an exocet missile was very, very important to Israel because they were being sold to, to the enemies in Israel and the testing of the head of an excellent missile to be able to create the, the, you know, the trajectory that understands the signature of a missile, which would be very harmful to the Navy, to the Israeli Navy, because these are, you know, this is a very potent missile, and uh, it's kind of like a fire and forget. Right, it's, right. It's, it's one of those things that you want to be able to know the telemetry of it, so when it's coming in, you know how to deal with it. Okay. Um, another thing you mentioned, you mentioned that uh, basically the, the Mossad had Israeli, at Yasser Arafat's driver, Kasim, uh, um, Kasim, I believe his name, was a Mossad informant, and he helped to find, like you mentioned, basically homosexual liaisons for Arafat, and, um, and there were rumors that Arafat had died of things that were related to um, homosexual conduct. I don't know if that's the case or not, but you mentioned that they had that agent pretty well infiltrated and um, with the other agents and informants they used that to attack the Tunisian base where Arafat was located and it seems that Arafat was pretty well penetrated is that is that correct that the Mossad pretty much had Arafat pretty well covered quite quite so which is one of the reasons they didn't want to ever take him out because they didn't want to make him a martyr at the same time and they had a lot of controls and elements around him that could be controlled Okay. So you, you, for example, like having his chauffeur on the payroll, you would think was a, probably a smart thing for the Mossad to do. Is that, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, and getting the, you know, making the availability of, you know, purchasing furniture and being able to bug the furniture at a time. Don't forget, 
the PLO at the time was a major enemy of the state of Israel, carried out terrorist attacks, you know, in the various places in the world and, and at the same time in Israel as well. Right, yes. Um, you also mentioned back to the 1980s that the, I think President Reagan had an envoy named Philip Habib, and they were doing peace talks in the 80s, and basically the Mossad intervened. They asked the CIA to show, they showed evidence to the CIA of Palestinian plans for attacks with the hope of it basically stopping any kind of a peace process. Is that correct? Yes, well, they were trying to do that all the time in every element possible. And there was one and one time when uh, they listened in and they heard the, you know, in Arafat's headquarters, there was a saying that, you know, Arafat is going to visit the White House okay. at the time. And they got really, really worried about that. And um, they almost revealed an agent that was that brought in the information when it turned out it was just a mistaken translation. Because Arafat was going to, uh, not to the White House, but to uh, Casablanca. Okay. Which is in translation is the White House. Got it. Um, you mentioned, obviously, the successful uh, rescue of Ethiopian Jews in the 80s, and you mentioned sort of like the Jewish rescue of um, Jews from Yemen in the 1950s. Um, that was obviously a successful operation, which I assume you approve of, correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They actually opened, um, in Sudan, they opened a, uh, a diving uh, facility, which facilitated a lot of the you know, rich Sudanese. And it was run by a French company, supposedly, but actually there was, the trainers in diving uh, were members of the Israeli Navy, of the Israeli SEAL teams uh, that were doing that. Okay. And they ran camp for quite a bit in order to help and facilitate the taking out of the Jews from Ethiopia. Right. Now, I just want to get to probably one of the most explosive, I guess a lot of publicity at the time, was that Israel had some evidence of the attack on the Marine bombings, uh, Marine barracks in Lebanon in the early 1980s, and they were told not to give the information to the CIA, um, and also they, they could have possibly been more helpful in saving Buckley, the hostage we had there, and that helped. You said also if we had saved Buckley, that might have prevented the Iran-Contra scandal, which obviously was uh, Reagan selling arms to Iran to try to rescue our hostages in Lebanon, and the head, I guess, Admani said, no, we are not going to help the Americans send only general information. Why would the Mossad not want to be more helpful to the United States in the specific uh, possibility of an attack on, on our uh, marine barracks? No, that, 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 is, that is a mis misreading of what I wrote. Okay. I mean, I, I, you're not the first one to say that. Okay. The they had specific information about an attack by a truck, a yellow truck, and they had more information about the yellow truck. They knew it's going to attack one of the facilities in Beirut. Could have been the Americans, could have been the Italians, could have been the British, could have been the French, and could have been the Israeli facilities at the time of the Shabbat there. Okay. The warning went out a lot more detail to the Shabbat, but some of the pieces of information were buried in the reports given to other countries in the Azov. Now, you have to consider the fact that when you give out information that is more detailed, the more details you have, the closer you are to the agents who provided that information or the asset, and you're endangering that asset. Okay. 
But money aside made the decision, you know, provide the information without threatening the asset. And that in itself had the marine barracks known that they're expecting a big truck, yellow, etc., that will attack. They would have opened fire on it way before it came, got close to the gate and may, and may have stopped the attack. Got it. So it wasn't as dramatic as the way I phrased it then. No, but, that, you know, when a book comes out in the 1990s, the, a lot of reporters just, you know, read and skim through it to be the first one to report. And there you get headlines which are not necessarily very accurate. Okay, Mr. dramatic thing, but then they keep out the others. Okay, I'm just going to mention we're just going to take a quick break now.
You're listening to City World Radio Intelligent Talk, Thursday at 5 p.m. We are pleased to have Mr. Victor Ostrovsky, a former Mossad officer. So um, what is your opinion of the Mossad today? Do you think that it has changed a lot from when you were there? Do you think there's more accountability, uh, or is it the same, or do you have any idea? Well, uh, I, I don't have direct contact with people in the Mossad, and I don't have, you know, stuff, fresh information. But I know for a fact that the head of Mossad is a known person today. I happen to know him personally because we went through the same course together. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, which comes to show you that when they said that I spoke names that, you know, that caused problems, I actually called him by his first name in the book by the name of Yossi C., and he didn't, he didn't hurt his career and he became head of Mossad. Okay. But I can tell you that if he's head of Mossad, there's no doubt that there's a lot of accountability today. It's a level-headed person who is very, very straightforward, honest as crazy, uh, and so I have no doubt that the Mossad now is a much better agency than it was before. It's only for the fact that he's head of the Mossad. You talked about the, the assassination squads, and I may get the name wrong. Is, is it called Kiton? Is that the name? Kiton, Kiton which means bayonet. Bayonet. And there, there was something like, what, 20? I forget how many squads there were. Do you remember, Mr. Ostrovsky, uh, at any one time when you there's were there? About five, there's about five of them, and they range from, you know, four to 12 people. And they they... They are a very uh, secret element of the agency. They are kept apart from everybody else. Uh, they don't know very much about the agency itself because they work in very dangerous places and have the possibility of getting captured. So they know very little about the agency itself. But they're very highly trained and very professional. Does the prime minister have the authority to order an assassination? Is that is that how it works? No, actually, the, if you have, you have to prove that the person has blood on his hands and has, or has a risk of, you know, killing more, and then the person is tried by a secret court. Really? Wow. Yes, and he has a lawyer, and the decision of the court is finalized, and uh, they can file an appeal. And it's a regular legal process, except it's kept very secret. And the attorneys and whoever is allowed to take their job very seriously. And then when the decision is made that it is a person that needs to be taken out, then it's, there's always the option of try to bring him in. And if it's not possible, then, you know, carry out an assassination. So they're... It's not really an assassination. It's more like an execution. An assassination is somebody who goes and assassinates, which would make the person doing the, uh, the killing an assassin. On the other hand, if you have an execution, which means the decision of the court was made and he got the death penalty, the person who takes out this operation is not an assassin or a killer. He's actually an executioner. Okay. He works within the law of the country he serves. And there's actually a lawyer assigned to him, and there's a trial, a, a record's kept, too? Absolutely. 
that's and I guess obviously there's no appeal because once the decision is made, the person doesn't know he's been targeted. So it's just they do the best they can without. No, the, but his attorneys can file an appeal because if they don't, if later on decided that there was something wrong, you know, it's just like a regular process of the law. Okay. So you don't want to have to, you know, revisit it. So there usually is an appeal made and prolongs the process, but that's what it is. They originally wanted to recruit you for that section, and you decided not to go into that. Is that correct? That is correct. And... Um, is it your feeling today, like with the peace process in Israel, um, that they remember the, the peace process that Israel offered in 2000 and 2003, which basically faltered under civil control of East Jerusalem? Is it your feeling that Israel has made concessions to try to live in peace and that is not the fault as to why there's not peace today? Or do you have a different view of that? The, the idea that there's a peace process going on is ludicrous. On the one hand, there is no peace process going on. And the longer it takes, the more the more you have the situation in the settlement that is getting out of control, and there's nothing to be, be will be able to be offered to the Palestinians that they can accept. Okay. Uh, I I don't see a peace process going on and moving forward, and uh, it's good for the state of Israel to have a peace process and become. Do do you think that the that the agreements that the offers in two thousand and two thousand and three, which basically Arafat walked away from, as I understand it, because of civil control of lack of civil control of East Jerusalem, that perhaps those were good offers that Arafat should have accepted? Not the way they were presented. You have to look at it from a Palestinian standpoint. A peace process is something you want to have that ends with both sides unsatisfied, but both sides satisfied at the same time. The, they, they presented things that Arafat could not accept. Don't forget, he was an elected person at some point, and he had to answer you know, to elements which were also extreme on his end. Okay. So he can't accept it, especially not on the Jerusalem factor. And there is a separation between the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, and there is a way to do that, but what's happening is the recruit government is building settlements in a way that would surround the, the city of Jerusalem that could be given to the Palestinians and isolated from the rest of the state if there was ever one. So you think peace with the Palestinians is possible if it was the correct offer then? Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. There's one which is the basic way, which is to annex the West Bank and the Gaza Strip into the state of Israel and give everybody citizenship. Okay. So that's what they did. Now, if you do that, you can't maintain Israel as a Jewish state, which is what uh, what Jimmy Carter, that's why he called it an apartheid situation because you want to keep a state under a certain regulation and run by the, by, you know, by a Jewish state. At the same time, if you want to have that, you have to be able to give concessions of some sort to have the Palestinians have territory. One of the things is how to connect Gaza and the West Bank, whether through a tunnel or an open road or something. But it has to be 
trust building elements first and uh, and the no doubt that the Palestinians as the years go by become more and more militant and more and more extreme which makes it more and more difficult to come to an agreement with them okay uh, what could have been achieved many years ago can't be achieved today at the time don't forget the PLO and the PFLPGC you know and the military arm of the PLO they were all secular groups, very secular. You know, Abu Nidal and all the rest of the terrorists, they were secular. So they, it was a lot easier to deal with them because they didn't have the religious fervor that you're dealing now with the Hamas and everybody else. Do you support Israel having a strong nuclear weapons program? Do you think that's a, a smart thing to do and to protect Absolutely. Um, do you have any information on the attack on the USS Liberty, which a lot of people say that Israeli knew what they were doing and it was done to stop the Americans from monitoring alleged abuse that were occurring during the Six-Day War in 67? Actually, actually, Israel at some point, that they were, all they were doing is bouncing communications from the Liberty onto the moon and back in. That was a very advanced system. But I have served in the Navy with people that have been supposedly involved in this uh, in this case, and I can tell you for a fact, directly, direct knowledge, and I said that many times, Israel did not do this purposefully. There was no intention of hurting an American ship. Israel, and one ambassador to Lebanon said that he heard the Israelis talk, the pilots talk between them, and one of them identified the, the flag on the ship or whatever and said attack, attack anyway. That could not be the case. First of all, the ambassador quoting an Israeli pilot when he doesn't speak a word of Hebrew, I don't understand why an Israeli pilot would talk in English for the benefit of the, the, the American ambassador in Beirut. Okay. When he already can speak Hebrew and that's already half the code. Uh, so, no, I can tell you from first-hand knowledge that the attack on the Liberty was not done purposefully. It was a mistake, and, and the Israelis who took part in it were really, in, you know, in, had a lot of psychological problems later. And, Mr. Sh may I give you a website? Would you like to give you a website, too, if people want to contact you? or Sure, victorstrafsky.com. And you have a... You, you now mostly deal in art, is that correct? I, I, it looked lovely from what I saw, but are you that's sort of your profession now, is that correct? Well, I, I do that, and I also am publishing a book with, together with my wife, Toby Ward. We're publishing a, uh, one book that's being going to be made into a movie. Oh, great. It's in the process made into a movie right now. It's called Axiom. And there's another book in the coming, which is the follow-up for this story. It's a, these are spy novels. And uh, in addition to that, we also have a website that which is for authors, which is called the Book Patch. Okay. So uh, any author that's a beginner or whatever could go there, and it's a print-on-demand system with a no-fee bookstore and everything else. So that was built and designed to assist authors in, you know, getting, a, getting ahead in life. It's called the thebookpatch.com? Yeah, when books grow, you know, like in a book patch. 
Okay. When when you wrote, obviously by way of deception, I remember it very well. It was it was I believe it was the only book that Israel tried to ban. Is, is that is that correct? Yes, they went to spoke in New York and they put a free publication ban on it. It lasted 24 hours. And uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post came in and spread with the court. They published and did. And that book, uh, and then did you then, were you afraid for yourself at all, your personal safety after that book was out, or were you out of, were you in hiding, or where were you at that time the book was being published? I was in Canada, and yeah, I was worried because they, their intention would have been to grab me before the book came out. But once the book came out, it became more of a legal matter. Do you think they would have grabbed you the way they grabbed Van Nunu? Was that the fear? Yes. So, and then basically things um, settled down. You're able to move to the U.S. and and turn to writing, and obviously your art gallery, and and you don't have any fears like that now, I imagine. Not really. Uh, they would still like to grab me if they could, but it's, I, I'm not worth it anymore for them. Do you ever go back to Israel? Do you ever have you been back at all? No. Um, I was there two years ago, and I was there um, in '91. I enjoyed obviously um, just the two trips that I've made. I found it very interesting, of course. Why did you choose to settle out in where you are out out west? Did you just like the the climate that you're in in Arizona, or? Well, when I moved to Canada, I was in Ottawa, and it was really cold for quite a few years. And moving to Arizona was a nice change, and, you know, this is amazing weather. So, uh, and then, uh, you know, there's a very big art community here and everything else. And also my dad, who lived in Omaha, moved to Arizona at the time before he passed away. So he was a new somebody. He was in the RAF, your father, right, who helped fight the Germans, I believe? Yes, he was in the Canadian Royal Air Force. He was, he a, was a, a rear gunner for Lancaster. A rear gunner. And w- were you born in Israel, Mr. Strauss? No. I was born in Canada and then in Alberta. And then you moved to Israel at a young age, is that right? Yeah, at about five years old. And then you served in the, in the Navy uh, for how many years were you in the Navy for? I served about altogether about seven years. Seven years. Are you are you glad that you took the opportunity to join the Mossad and have that interesting view into a secret organization that most of us can only read about? And was that an interesting time of your life, looking back at it? Yeah, it's kind of a mixed feeling. I mean, I wish I wouldn't have and just stayed in the military, which I enjoyed very much. I was lieutenant commander in the navy. And, you know, could have advanced further there and be a whole different ballgame. But, uh, you know, when you have an experience like that, you have to make the best of it. And uh, you see a dark side of the world that you don't necessarily want to have seen. Uh, But once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, a dark and I guess a fascinating part of the world. Um which obviously is still very much going on today, of course. Oh, of course. Did you have any opinions of other intelligence organizations like the CIA and MI6 versus how they operated versus Mossad as far as professionalism and competence? Well, we always considered the CIA to be one of the most uh, competent and well-run organizations around 
the British intelligence, and the best thing you know about them is they write the most amazing reports, and they're detailed and everything else. They're very detail-oriented. And they, but uh, we, we really took off as much as we could after the KGB because they, you know, we used to say, what is Mossad? Mossad is like the CIA, but with a KGB attitude. <laughs> so, the KGB, the KGB being very aggressive, I assume you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you have to be when you're dealing with, you know, with the enemies of Israel in a comparative number. And the fact that you cannot have, you know, stations everywhere, which are now more available... Like the U.S. has embassies everywhere, so you can have a station just about anywhere you want. Uh, Israel could not have any stations in any, any, in any country. They all had to be illegals. By way of deception was the, the credo for the Mossad, but is, is that the same phrase now they use, or is it different? I think they changed it, but it used to be by way of deception after the war. And I think they changed it to, with much counsel, you should do war. Okay. Which is the same, same sentence, but in a different translation. I see. And uh, the Mossad d does mean institute. Is, is that correct? Was I right about that? The Mossad is, yeah, it's called the institute. It's actually the full name of the Mossad is the Institute for Intelligence and Special Operations. And I think, does it have something like... Something like 2,000 members, would that be accurate? Something like that? At the time, but that would include secretaries, you know, uh, drivers, uh, you know, everybody else. So relative to any other agency, that's very small. I doubt that the numbers are much bigger today. Do you, do you think they still have those, those, those pool parties, those exciting pool parties you discussed in your book? <laughs> Let's see, I mean, is it in the same building that you were in? The same? Would it be the same place? Well, the academy is in the same place right now, but they moved about two blocks north of where they were before and built a really big rectangular hexagon-shaped building, which looks like a beehive. Okay. Beautiful. But uh, they're still in the same facility, the same vicinity. If you had, just just in summing up, Mr. Ostrowski, if you had any recommendations of what the Mossad should do differently, would it basically just be more oversight, the way the Shin Bet is more oversight? Would that basically be less in the shadows? Or what would be the, the end all the, of, of what you've learned over thinking about it over 20 years and having your, your service in the Mossad? Well, here's the thing. I never claimed to have been one of the leaders of the agency or held a very high position in it. So... From my perspective, I can only say to this, you know, operational thinking and operational carrying out various things are very much dependent on the needs and the call. But the, the main problem and the main element for an agency like Mossad would be oversight. And if they have oversight, then I don't have a problem with them. And I don't think anybody should. Because then the, everything lies in the hands and the shoulders of the politicians who are elected to make decisions. And if you, if you carry out everything with oversight, then it's supposed to be right. And, and a person can take responsibility and pay the 
price when the day comes that they have to. And there's not good oversight now, in your opinion, or at least there wasn't when you were there. It wasn't when I was there, but it could be very good now. I can't tell you that. Okay. And and the shin bet, is the shin bet overseen by the Knesset? Is there a committee of the Knesset which oversees that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I would assume that there is part of it now that over also oversees the Mossad. Got it. But what is it? I don't know. Okay, well, um, well, thank you so much, Mr. Ostrovsky, for coming on. It's been very interesting speaking with you. And um, your, obviously, website is victorostrovsky.com. It's been very informative. Um, thank you so much for your time. And um, I wish you all the best and hope to talk to you again in the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And anytime you need me.